0: Well, the days stretch on as the COVID-19 crisis continues. The 14-day lockdown is old news. We're moving into long-term territory now. April has largely been canceled as authorities are expecting the infection death rate to peak mid-April. Everyone wants to return to normal as soon as possible. But for now, though, we keep waiting and living that stay-at-home life. For most, though, this time is not like a staycation people are facing real hardship. Those who got infected, of course, are going to have real health concerns. Beyond that, isolation and social distancing are taking their toll on our personal lives, our our church life. And then you add to that the question mark of finances, several are dealing with unemployment. Everyone's going to be affected in some way, and the longer this goes on, the more troubling it gets. But the thing about trouble, though, is it has a way of of not coming alone. It it quite often gives birth to triplets, fear, anxiety, and worry. People can't stop thinking about the what ifs, that they worry over the future. The problem is, such anxiety can become a trial in its own right. It can take over a person's life. Ultimately, we're not in control of our lives. We like to think that we are and feel that we are, it makes us feel safe and secure, but it's just a matter of time before some circumstance arises that will rip any notion of control you have right out of your hands. Now, that diagnosis of cancer, that rebellious adult child, that national quarantine. You're going to face plenty of situations where there's just nothing you can do to change things. The tide is too strong. You can try and fight against it, but it likely won't go well. And you just might be shipwrecked by fear, anxiety, and worry. And instead, God tells us to yield control to him and to trust him. He tells us not to worry. Matthew six thirty four. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I mean, that's true when you think about it, right? Each day has plenty of its own trouble to care for. Just deal with that. Why add all of the potential burdens of tomorrow to today, most of which will never even happen anyway, right? Don't worry. Trust God. But I think we all know for a majority of people that it's much easier said than done. Worry comes to us so naturally, but but a life of perfect peace seems elusive, unattainable? Is it even possible? And can we really, as the Lord says, not worry about tomorrow? How do you do that? Especially when it feels like you can't control the thoughts that are running through your mind. How can a person actually experience peace when life's circumstances are totally out of control? We're going to hope to find that out this morning. You know we favor the verse-by-verse verse exposition of Scripture here, but every so often a, an event happens that so rattles the world or the church that it just needs to be addressed. And I still think we're in that territory as this coronavirus outbreak is, is probably a once-in-a-hundred-year event for us. So it's worthwhile to step in as a shepherd and, and use the Word of God to, to minister to people and address the challenges we're facing. And as I think through those challenges, to be honest, the threat of coronavirus is still small for us in our neck of the woods. We're not in a hard hit area for now that all could and likely will change. But I think more so the threat of fear, anxiety and worry for a lot of us is through the roof. And that's not the way to go though. Not only does God call us to respond with, with trust and with peace, but that type of response both blesses us and is a witness to others, and so right now we need to hear from God's word, how we not venture down that dark alley of worry, how we avoid going there. You know, a little while ago, I was talking to one of our elders, Rod, and he said that in these days or whenever he faces trouble in life, he likes to go camping. He takes his tent and he goes camping at, at a special passage of scripture, a passage which uniquely guides and directs his response And he's learned that he just needs to go back to this passage again and again. And it's not because he's forgotten it. I think he has it memorized. It's just that when trouble comes, it has a way of clouding your mind and overtaking your thoughts. In a time of trouble, a lot of untruths or false truths can appear real. And so instead, you need to renew your mind and recalibrate your thoughts to what's true need to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That will guard your thoughts and guide your actions, ensuring your right response. You know, the passage that Rod has in mind is, is the right place to go. It's, it's the perfect place to be. And I pray you can learn to camp here as well. The passage I'm talking about is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. You can turn your Bibles there now, at least for our, our skeleton audience here. And for you at home, you can turn your Bibles to Philippians 4 6 and 7. And that's going to be our text for this morning. And as you're turning, I'll, I'll read it for us. Philippians 4 6 and 7. It's where the Apostle Paul writes Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This passage isn't complicated. I mean, that's why it's so helpful. It, it's very simple. We're told what not to do. Don't be anxious for anything. And we're told instead what we should do and pray in everything. If you could just replace every anxious thought with a prayer, you'd be good to go. And then you'd get the result, this peace of God, which guards your heart. I mean, this This all sounds very good. This is what you should be doing whenever trouble arises. And though it is, in a sense, simple, it's still worth our time to to camp out here and and go through these verses in more detail that we can really learn and appreciate the right and the wrong response to troubled times. Before we do that, though, a word on the context, because we're dropping into the conclusion, Paul's finishing up his letter to the Philippian church, but we're going to apprehend and appreciate and apply this passage, we need to see it in its original setting. And you know what? The context, though, makes it even more helpful to the trouble we're going through. We've been talking a lot about eternal perspective lately, especially when it comes to responding to crisis and calamity. But Paul's instruction here is like the perfect word of application to all that. This is how we respond, and what he says here comes right out of his own eternal perspective. Throughout this letter, Paul keeps talking about the finish line in regards to the Philippians and their race of faith. And he calls it the day of Christ. He just wants to make sure that that they're going to, to finish the race of faith. They're going to cross that line. They're going to reach the day of Christ. You know, back in chapter one, verse six, he says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's good news. God started you on this race of faith. He's going to ensure that you finish it. And you can trust God to do his part of preservation. The Philippians, in turn, simply need to do their part of perseverance. And so Paul wants them to be, down in chapter 1, verse 10, sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And Paul's writing to believers in Macedonia who were notably poor. And as if if the trial of poverty wasn't enough, they were being afflicted from persecution without, from false teachers within. This is not surprising though. And Paul's not trying to shelter them from all trouble. And trouble's going to come. He just wants to see them stand firm in the midst of it. The apostle views his very life, chapter 2, verse 17, as being being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of their faith. In other words, he's giving up his whole life just to see them come to Christ and know Christ and grow in Christ. And so, chapter 2, verse 16, he doesn't want to run or toil in vain. He doesn't want all of his work on their behalf to be in vain. Rather, on the day of Christ, he wants reason to glory because they were the real deal. He just wants to make sure these believers are true children of God. And that proof comes largely in how they live, how they respond to trials, how they persevere, how they stand firm in the faith, no matter what. Look down at chapter 1, verse 27. This is like the the key verse Is telling us how to live rightly until we cross the finish line on the day of Christ. He says only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And from here, Paul goes on to show them what conduct worthy of the gospel looks like he reminds them how to stand firm in one spirit he says a lot most of which we're not going to cover right now but you can now fast forward back to chapter four where he wraps it all up he delivers his final thrust he's still on track here And, and what's this all about chapter four verse one he says therefore my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice he calls them his crown. These Christians are the fruit of his life's labor. And so the last thing he wants to see is for them to fall away or fall apart just because trouble strikes. No, no, trouble is going to strike, but what they need to do is, is stand firm. And the same goes for us, the same goes for the church in every age. And to finish up, though, Paul's going to tell them how, in rather practical terms, how to stand firm. Verses 2 and 3, be harmonious. Verse 4, be joyous. Verse 5, be gracious. We could camp out all those verses and learn even more how we as the church are to stand firm in trouble. But now we're going to go to verses 6 and 7 here. Be prayerful. Trouble comes at us in life like waves threatening to knock us over, drag us out to sea. And sometimes we're hit by, it feels like a tsunami. Who can stand? Well, only those who are firmly founded on the rock of Christ. Only those who depend on God and trust him. And only those who regularly express that trust in prayer. That's what Philippians 4, 6 and 7 is all about. And what we find then is a potent passage on how to endure hardship, how to overcome fear, anxiety, and worry, and how to stand firm in the faith. And these are all such important lessons to learn at all times, especially in the midst of our COVID-19 crisis. And so this is a good place to camp out and to dwell on, to think about. We're going to do that now. i are going to dive in, take a closer look at these verses. And we're simply trying to find how to stand firm in trouble. How to stand firm in trouble. We'll begin first with what you shouldn't do. And number one, what you shouldn't do. The Philippian church was facing trouble. More was on the horizon that can't be helped. You can't always control your circumstances, but you can control how you respond. And that's what Paul is getting at in these verses. How do you respond to life's difficulties? There's for sure a wrong response and that's captured in very simple terms. At the beginning of verse six, he says negatively, be anxious for nothing. This is a present imperative as a prohibition. It could be translated, stop being anxious. Paul had gotten word from Epaphroditus and likely had good reason to believe the Philippian church was wrestling with anxiety already and losing. What exactly does it mean to be anxious? Well, this word has a positive sense where it means to be genuinely concerned for someone's welfare. I mean, if you had parents trapped on a cruise ship with the coronavirus outbreak going on, you would naturally be concerned for them. That concern can turn into sinful anxiety real quick, but but there's a good and right place of uh, having a deep concern for others. But quite often this word for anxiety is used in that negative sense. And taken this way, anxiety refers to a fearful concern. It's, It's an overwhelming uneasiness of mind over an anticipated ill. It's when you're overly worried about some future event that may or may not take place. I like how one commentator put it. It is, quote, attempting to carry the burden of the future oneself, end quote. And that's such an impossible burden to bear. And like Jesus said, he was right. Each day has enough trouble of its own But this anxiety is where you're trying to also carry the the burden of tomorrow, the, the 10 burdens of tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. And most of them will actually never even come to pass. Most of your worry is literally for nothing. Already, that should tell you something. I mean, just think of all the worries you have, everything that's kept you up at night in the past. And you tell me, how many of them never ended up happening? How futile is that? But we still keep worrying because fear is a powerful force. And if you don't believe me, then just explain where all the toilet paper is gone. There was no threat to the national toilet paper supply with a virus outbreak. It's just that people became fearful and concerned over what might happen, and so they rushed to the stores. But what gets you? What makes you anxious? And what keeps you up at night, tempting you at least to become fearful and fretful. Right now, the threat of disease is front and center, but the list is long. Finances, debt, bills, rent, losing a job, finding a job. And pretty much anything involving money makes people worry. Also, relational issues, spousal conflict, family conflict, raising children, being alone, health, death. We all have fears that at the very least tempt us to worry. We you see in this verse, and we get no wiggle room because Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Nothing on these lists merits your fear, anxiety, and worry. It's not to say that we should ignore trouble in life and just be passive. No, we still have to be responsible and prudent and wise. And so, we wear seatbelts. We have savings accounts. We wash our hands during a, an outbreak. But sinking into an emotional tailspin during trouble is not a right or helpful response. Why is that? Why is such fearful anxiety a sin to God? Why is it that big of a deal? I mean, you're not hurting anybody. But why is it that consistently in Scripture we see this issue as being such a big problem. And wants want us to think about that for a moment here. Why is, is anxiety and fear and worry such a problem? Well, first off, God doesn't want you to worry because he knows it, it's not good for you. A panic can wreak havoc on your life like a tornado ripping through a town. It just messes up everything, leaves everything in a mess. And obviously worry will mess with your mind. It can, it can become consuming where a person is, is thinking about little else. But do you really think that God wants your thought life continually preoccupied with your worries and your what ifs? No, God has much better plans and intentions for your thought life. He wants you to set your mind on things above. Remember? In addition, anxiety and worry can take a toll on your body. And God made us two parts, body and soul, inner man, outer man. And we still don't even fully understand the body, let alone the mind and and how the two interact. But they do. We know there's some connection. And this is why it's not surprising that study after study has shown that stress in life is strongly correlated to a whole slew of health problems. And we don't fully understand these problems, but we just, we know they've got something to do with stress. is like this catch-all term. But listen to a long list of serious ailments that all have stress as, as at least an underlying factor. Heart disease, asthma, obesity, diabetes, headaches, depression, GI problems, Alzheimer's. The list really goes on. I mean, clearly anxiety is no small problem. King David in the Old Testament knew about this. He was under a lot of stress. Most of it was legitimate, you know, like people trying to kill him and hunting him down. But it took a toll on his body. And he reflects on his affliction in Psalm 31. And and he says this, just listen to Psalm 31, 9 and 10. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. and My body has wasted away. An overwhelming fear and anxiety. It's not a simple problem that can just be brushed aside. But it's not good. And that's because first, God knows that it's not good for you. And there's a second reason fear, anxiety, and worry are such big problems to God. He knows they're not good because they can lead you into a form of of unbelief. No, we're not saying that if you ever worry, you're an unbeliever. No, it's just that for all of us, all of us, we can get to this point where we give into our fears and anxieties so much that without realizing it, that they're leading us into a type of unbelief. We come to express a lack of faith, which is akin to doubt. And coronavirus strikes, you lose your job. And maybe that's you right now. So now what? It's only natural to respond with the question, what am I going to do now? What will I do for the future? How will I live and pay bills and, and eat and survive? Those are not wrong questions to ask. That's not worrying. You have to rightly deal with trouble. Affliction strikes us all. Christians are not immune. The message here is not just dig your head in the sand and pretend everything is okay. No, you're going to have to confront real affliction head on and make responsible choices with your troubles. But the thing is, every moment of crisis still presents you with this other choice. Fear or faith. Spiritually speaking, how will you respond to whatever hardship you face. The fear response is where you then just give in to all the doubts and all the what ifs that are running through your mind. You start to panic as if your future doom is certain. But you see, when you give in to such overwhelming worry, you're, you're implicitly doubting something about God that he's either good or wise or powerful or in control or sovereign or loving it's not that you're actually denying these things. You still believe all these things about God. It's just that in the moment, your problems appear so big that they eclipse the character of God. And you just, in that moment, you you can't see God. You're not seeing God. He's he's blocked by your problems. And so you, you momentarily forget that God is all powerful or sovereign. That he's always on the throne. He never loses an ounce of his creation. And furthermore, he loves his children immensely. He cares for you. I mean, how quickly we forget these truths. This can happen to all of us. And when it does, when God is eclipsed by your troubles, it, it won't take long before you fall into a type of sinful anxiety that becomes a, a momentary unbelief. And that's why this is serious to God. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so when you're in that state of fear, not faith, you're not being pleasing to God. And we don't want to go there. Instead, however, in that moment of crisis, we're to respond in faith. Now, in faith, you may not be able to make sense of your trials. You may not understand how God could possibly work this out for good, like he promises in Romans 8, 28. But in faith, you're bringing back to mind The fact that, well, look, you know your God, you know who he is, you know what he's like. He's sovereign, he's wise, he's still on the throne, he will always do what is right. Nothing can stop him from keeping his promises. And so you're you're reminding yourself of what you already know and believe. God will work this out for my good. Ultimately, that means making me more like Christ. I can't see how that's going to happen, but I can trust him. To do that. That right there is is pretty much the definition of faith. And that is a response that pleases God. As often as you struggle or have that moment of crisis, instead of worrying, instead of that fear response, you put on this, this faith response. And the way you express that faith response is through prayer. And this leads us to number two, what you should do. How do you stand firm in trouble? Well, what you shouldn't do is is worry. At least a fearful, sinful type of worry. What you should do, we find in the rest of verse 6. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Trouble and trials will strike your life. It's only a matter of time. And when they do that, the wrong response is to sink into fear and despair. But instead, lift your troubles up to God in prayer. Take your burdens to the Lord. Cast them on him. He cares for you. He tells you to do that. That's what you're you're supposed to do. And so let's go through the rest of this verse in more detail. At first, you'll notice the stark, intentional contrast between nothing and everything. You see that? Be anxious for what? Nothing. No exceptions are listed. There are no good reasons to fall into sinful worry. But instead, though, you're supposed to pray when, in everything. All situations of life, all circumstances merit prayer. You would never be wrong to pray about them. that's in fact what God wants you to do. And some people only pray when bad times come. And you need to learn the lesson to to be uh, continually moment by moment in dependence upon God. And he'll teach you that lesson one way or another. But that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't pray when trials come. I mean, especially when you're sick or suffering, or troubled. Pray. Don't doubt God or blame God. Just cry out to God. Now, Paul's not trying to give a theology lesson on prayer here. He's simply emphasizing the priority of prayer in our response, our faith response. And that should be our knee-jerk reaction to trouble. And to make this point, he stacks up three terms, prayer, supplication, and requests. Prayer is just that general term for praying to God. But supplication and requests are two other prayer terms. But they both have in mind, specifically making petition to God. Asking God for something. that's That's a dimension of our prayer life. What do you want? In a time of trouble, you want something. You want some desired circumstance. You want some outcome. And so, well... Go ahead, make it known, lift it up to God. That's what we're being told to do. When you're sick with disease, petition God to be healed. When you lose your job and you don't know where your next paycheck will come from, pray that God would provide. Ask him to help you. When you're persecuted by the wicked, make supplication that God would would see and protect And preserve. I mean, you name it, in everything, pray. Just let your requests be made known to God. I mean, already you can apply that. Think about your trouble right now in life, whether it's related to coronavirus or not. Have you already been praying about that and making supplication? And if not, why not? Let this trouble. Be the occasion that, that forces you to the throne of grace where you may find help in a time of need. And just let, let this situation we're all in cause new prayer habits to form in your life. Still though, some people have a hard time praying. And to them, prayer seems pointless. Because in the end, you know, whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. Their will doesn't really matter. Aren't we supposed to be praying God's will anyway? So, like, what's the use? Why should I bother praying my requests? But you see, such a person is failing to recognize the many reasons God tells us to pray. Do you know some of those reasons? You know, it's true. God is not a magic genie, and prayer is not about wish fulfillment. Prayer is not the means of our will being done in heaven. But it is one of the means of God's will being done on earth. And you should know that God has determined to work through the means of his praying people to accomplish his will on earth, such that if they don't pray, they won't receive. You know, that too is part of the paradox of prayer. Yes, God's will be done. But you know, we're also told in scripture, you do not have because you do not ask I mean, here's the thing. We, we want God's will to be done. Jesus taught us how to pray, our Father in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the thing is that we don't always know God's hidden will. In fact, we almost never know God's hidden will until after the fact. We don't have any special revelation here. So when a loved one gets sick, is it God's will for them to be healed and recover Or maybe their days are numbered. This is when they're supposed to go. Who knows? How how can we know God's hidden will? But we're we're not supposed to know. We're not meant to know. You don't don't need to know. So long as you're not going against God's revealed will in Scripture, what you're supposed to do is just take your will, your desires, your requests. And again, so long as they're not against God's revealed will in Scripture, you just turn them into petitions, and then ask away. Ask away. Lay them at the feet of the Lord in a a humble dependence. God is telling you to do that. And he just might choose to work through your prayers to accomplish his perfect will. You leave that to him, but you can always trust him to do what is right. And your part, just ask away. And furthermore, God wants us to pray in everything, because the very act of asking is an act of faith that pleases the Lord. And this is why prayer in this verse is seen as the antidote to fear, anxiety, and worry. When trouble comes up, we respond with fear and panic. You know, your flesh is leading you to implicitly doubt God's sovereign goodness, care, and control. You're going to cross that line into doubt. That's bad for you. It's not pleasing to the Lord. But on the flip side, you take that, you turn into prayer. That becomes an implicit and explicit expression of of faith in God. In every act of prayer, you're confessing just by the act, there is a God in heaven. He is there. He hears me. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's good. He, He cares for his people. He wants to hear from me. He wants me to trust him. Now, when you pray, you're doing just that. And so if you can just find a way to replace or, or twist your anxious thoughts and turn them into prayers and even petitions, you realize you're expressing faith in the Lord and you're pleasing the Lord. You know, if you can take this just one step further, prayer is also a means of renewing your mind. Prayer is a function of the mind. It it involves your mind. You can't pray when you're sleeping. It's a function of the mind. And biblical prayer involves calling the truth of God to mind. And that in itself has immense value. Trouble has a way of bending us low and weighing us down. Where all we can see is the trial before us. And that trial looks really big. But when you pray... You're lifting your head up. You're looking up. You're remembering. Well, wait. God's still there. And he, he's bigger. Even though your life may feel out of control. In prayer, you're calling to mind. And you're expressing in your petitions the fact that God is still on the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. And just those very reflections have a way of, of counteracting your anxiety. As you let in prayer, the truth of God rule in your mind. Isn't this what King David did? Just just to pick on David again, he modeled this right response for us throughout many of the Psalms. David knew fear, anxiety, and worry. He had pressure in life that you just can't turn off. There's no switch to flip, to make it go away. A lot of people today, they just carry trouble in their minds and They feel like I can't stop thinking about it. Maybe so. But if you can take those thoughts and just every time they come in your mind, just you immediately transform them into a prayer or petition. Well, hey, at least you're redeeming your trouble and you're glorifying God. I read part of Psalm 31 before where where David was pouring out his troubled heart before the Lord. Not in complaint, but in petition. But he, at the same time, though, he was calling to mind all these truths of God. And these were all the truths that his trouble was trying to deny. But he was, he was speaking truth to them in prayer. That's part of the solution. Listen now to Psalm 31, uh, 1 through 5. <clears throat> David says, "In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord the God of truth. You see, in the very act of prayer, you are both praising God and renewing your mind. You are both expressing trust and finding help. This is what you need to do. And then don't forget to add in some thanksgiving. It's going back to Philippians 4, 6 here. In addition to petition, throw in some thanks. Now, the thing about anxiety is that it fixes our eyes on the worries of the future. And that causes us, though, to forget all the blessings of the past. But especially in a time of trouble, that's exactly what you need to be focusing on. Don't look forward in worry. Look backward in remembrance. Think about yesterday. Remember the the hundreds of times God cared for you and met your needs and answered your prayers. And that, too, as you thank God, you'll be praising God. And it will put your troubles into perspective. After all, when you look really far back, don't you realize that God already has sent his son Christ to die for you on the cross and rise from the dead? And so what now? You think he's going to just let you go or let you perish forever? Now we have peace with God. We have an eternal salvation. That is enough to overcome all worry. Now to be sure here in verse six, we're not given a blank check promise that every request you make of God will be granted. No, your trouble just might take your life as it did for Jesus and his apostles, but it can't take your soul and God will never leave you or forsake you. He will perfect you. He will glorify you. He will finish that faith and get you to the day of Christ, to the finish line. You just need to cling to him and call to him. He doesn't leave you empty handed. You know, speaking of peace with God, there is one guaranteed result that comes when you put off anxiety, put on prayer. That leads us to to number three. And lastly, what will come to you? What will come to you? What you shouldn't do, worry. What you should do, pray. And now what will come to you? Well, it's found in verse 7. Let's read that again. He says, after this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a result that comes to you when you trust God and pray, and that result is peace. But it's not just any peace. The peace of God. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. You know, the peace of God is not like the peace that the world gives. And what is the peace that the world gives? You know, today in a word, I think it would be escapism. Life is difficult and stressful and full of hardships. And so in response, the world offers drugs, alcohol, medication, TV, movies, sports, entertainment, you name it. But the world's peace is merely distraction. Eventually, though, you're going to have enough trouble where distraction just doesn't cut it anymore. But God's peace is far better. It's lasting. It's satisfying. It's real. And God's peace will outperform the world's peace every time. This literally is the peace that belongs to God. We're talking about here. I mean, do you ever picture God in heaven getting anxious or, or fearful or fretful about how things are going on earth? Is he, is he biting his fingernails in suspense? As the earth was being flooded. As the temple in Jerusalem was being destroyed. As his son was being crucified by wicked and godless men. Was God just up there in panic, sitting on the edge of his throne? And God has never sat on the edge of his throne. Nothing can shake God's peace. And so what you think your trouble or coronavirus is an exception? God only knows perfect peace, but that, that's the peace he gives to you. And no wonder this is why Paul says it's a peace that surpasses comprehension. It, it's it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's more than you can comprehend. But God will will give this to you as you depend on him in prayer. And notice this is all passive. As you pray, God just floods you with peace. His peace comes upon you. It overpowers you. It will overwhelm your emotions. And so to the degree that you trust God, put away fear, and just depend on him in prayer, you will enjoy his peace. All this is simple, but it's not necessarily easy. Some people really are excessively burdened by trouble in life. And others are just more prone to worry. They're threatened with staying up all night, tossing, turning, fretting over what troubles them. And their body just won't let them sleep. But listen, if that's you, you still have one choice to make. You know, if your burdens are going to keep you awake anyway, you might as well just pray all night. I mean, you realize it takes the same amount of mental and physical energy to pray all night as it does to just worry all night. You might as well just pray all night. And at least you'd be doing something redemptive with your time. You'd be pleasing to God the whole time. And you might need to labor and wrestle with God in prayer for days for weeks. But as you do, his peace will arrive. Verse 7 goes on to say that the peace of God does something for you. It guards your hearts and minds. This verb for guard is a military term used of soldiers on duty. It's like a soldier protecting a city. God will set a garrison at your heart. And when circumstances arise that that try and besiege your peace, God will arise he says he will defend you guard your peace no matter where the attack is directed you see heart mind your thinking your feeling he promises to protect your peace as you trust him you know as a final note you'll see how this peace of god only comes to those in Christ Jesus you see that this is just for those in Christ Jesus and this is an essential point have you been reconciled to God. Have you made peace with God? This is man's ultimate and greatest need. And if you've not been reconciled to God in salvation, you have no hope. There is no chance of knowing this peace, real peace in this life or the next. There's no peace for the sinner, for the one living, persisting in rebellion against God. But thanks be to God that he made peace with us. And how did he do that? Well, through the supreme peace offering. He sent his son Jesus to be sacrificed on the cross in order to remove the barrier of our sin. That which kept us away from God. But Christ paid for that on the cross. He removed that wedge of sin. He enabled reconciliation between God and man. And Christ and his cross formed this, this bridge. This bridge of peace between God and man. And all true peace comes, as verse 7 says, in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus reconciled us to God. He established peace through the blood of his cross. Don't forget Romans 5.1 which says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with our God through Jesus Christ the Lord. You can't buy this peace. You can't earn it. You can't trade for it. It only comes to those who've been reconciled to God. And that only comes by faith in Christ and faith alone. And if that's you, though, now you have his Holy Spirit, and as you walk by that Spirit, you will bear the fruit of peace. And as you pray, and as you trust God, that peace will be yours. It will be increasing. You know, here as we think about salvation, and our peace with God. We're reminded that our hope. Is not found in this world. Our hope is not in this life. You now, as Paul said back in. Philippians 3.11. our hope. Is to attain to the resurrection. Of the dead. We live for. Eternity. Through faith in Christ. That we might know him. And know the power of his resurrection. That's what we're after. The thing is, though, right now, we've been saved, justified, we're assured, but but we're not there yet. We haven't reached that day of Christ. We've not been glorified. Look back at Philippians 3.12. Just flip the page, verse 12. And Paul expresses his heart. He says, speaking of this desire for, for future glory. Not that I've already obtained it, or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. We haven't attained that glory yet. So what do we do? Well, just keep pressing on, keeping our eye on the prize. Verse 13 of chapter three, he says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead He says again, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, what is our goal and our prize? They're one and the same. It's the upward call of God. And the real real prize we're living for, it's not found here below. Be it in health or wealth or relationships. The ultimate prize is just Christ himself. Knowing him, knowing the power of God. Of his resurrection. And to get there for now. We just fix our eyes on him. And just walk and live rightly. But not everyone keeps this up. Look at verse 17. Of chapter 3. Just for a moment. Keep going. He says brethren join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And then he says for many walk. Of whom I often told you. And now tell you even weeping. Weeping. That they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose god is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. You know, there are some who prove to love the things of this world more than Christ, and their minds were consumed with things below, and so they ended up denying Christ. They they refused to pick up his cross. He's talking about. Once professing Christians. But like Demas. They loved this present world. And so they deserted Jesus. They made shipwreck of their faith. They chose wrongly. It's just like Jesus said. John 12 25. He who loves his life. Loses it. But he who hates his life. In this world. Will keep it. To life eternal. And the latter should describe us. Life in this world it's not our treasure anymore, it's not our hope, it's not our home. Following Christ is worth it. And our hope is coming. And as Paul reminds us in the very next verse, just just look, verse 20. We're still there. He says, "For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state" into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. See, that's where our hope is. That's the ultimate source of our peace. Jesus told his disciples that in the world they would have tribulation. Your trouble in life, again, it, it might just end up taking your life. But Jesus himself did not escape the cross. But through prayer... Through a humble dependence on the Father, he was enabled to endure the cross, despising the shame. And then he rose to everlasting life. And and so it goes for us. That too is what we must do. We're not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. We haven't reached the finish line yet. So in the meantime, what do we do? Well, again, the very next verse, which is chapter 4, verse 1, what does he say? Therefore, now you understand the therefore. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. That's it. Just stand firm in the Lord. How do we live through times of trouble? How do we respond? All we need to do is just stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm on Christ. Stand firm on the gospel. Stand firm in your faith. And that will happen as you're anxious for nothing. But pray in everything. As you live in a restful trust in God, no circumstance will shake you. But he will instead flood your soul with perfect peace and sustain you until the day of Christ. And so learn this lesson. Fear not, pray much. Don't let the troubles of this world pull you away from Christ. Rather, let even the troubles of our day draw you closer to him than, than you've ever been before. That is what we need to do to stand firm. With that, I'll leave you with Paul's benediction from 2 Thessalonians. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Let's pray. Now, Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our prayer, Lord. We call to you, recognizing, even in that very act of prayer, we are remembering and confessing, you're God. You're there. You're the God of heavens and earth. You made this world. You reign and rule over it. There's not a single atom in the universe that is outside of your control, you're our sovereign. Yet, you love us. You care for us. You're after our own good. You sent Christ to die for us, to rise again, to reconcile us, to give us an eternal home, to bring us back to you, that we might be now with you forever in the heavens. We think of all that you've done, Lord, and we need to, to remember this in prayer. And, and we need to turn to you. We only want your will to be done because your will is perfect. You are God in heaven, we don't want merely our will. But Lord, you're so gracious to us that you call us to let our requests be made known to you. You give us a gift of peace. And though uh, our every wish is not your command, Lord, as we just live this life in a humble and prayerful dependence on you, you promise enough. You'll care for us. You'll sustain us. You will bless us. But above all, you will carry us to the end. You'll help us finish this race of faith that we might see that day of Christ and be with you, reconciled forever. We need all of these truths to just be in the forefront of our mind, especially in times of trouble. Don't let us forget, Lord, through reading the word, through meditation, even through prayer, let the word of Christ richly dwell within us and guide us in dark and troubled times. We long for your peace, and it will come as we just depend on you. Walk daily with our Savior. Help those right now who are here, or who are listening, who are severely afflicted with fear, anxiety, worry, and panic. Help them to, to take this all to heart, to grow in this humble trust in you, that their troubles may not go away and they may still be in for a wrestling match, but, but just cause them to pray, to pray long and hard, to contend with you, call out petition. You hear, you will answer. Just be with them. Give them your peace, even in this moment, uh, that they might uh, serve you and live for you. Thank you for all these truths. May they stay with us now throughout this crisis, but with the rest of our lives, that we may always walk in peace before you, standing firm until the day of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.